This is Detroit Today, and I'm Ann DeLisi sitting in for Stephen Henderson. Well, I am the second contingency, apparently. Well, Stephen wasn't here, and Jake Neer was going to sit in, and then, well, he and his wife had a baby, so congratulations to them and uh, their newborn, Samuel. So here I am, and I'm in great company today. So I am here with our good friend, Ishmael Ahmed, who is the host of This Island Earth. Thanks, Sister Ann. It is good to see you. <laughs> so, um, Ish, we should, Ishmael, I'll call you Ishmael. I won't be so informal when we're on the air today. But uh, you founded the Concert of Color, so we're going to talk about that in just a second. And Don was is here, a good friend, um, musician, producer, president of Blue Note Records. So thank you for being here. Good to see you, Ann. So we have a lot going on this week, guys. Um, and so, Ishmael, we're going to start with you first, because the Concert of Colors has moved locations. So is this the third location that it's had or the fourth location in its 27-year history? It's actually 30 years old. And uh, originally it was in a bunch of neighborhoods. And they were so huge, we had to find a huge location. And Mary Young offered us uh, Shane Park. And we were there for a good long time. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, then Ann Parsons and the DSO uh, made the DSO our home for over 12 years. And this year we will be uh, in the Detroit Institute of Arts, taking up all of the stages and outside and in many other venues as well. We also have a new home. We were, uh, our home was New Detroit originally, who asked us to organize the communities of color originally to put on the Concert of Colors. Now it's everybody's Concert of Colors. Uh, But um, after a while, we moved uh, from New Detroit to Access. I was the director mm-hmm. of the Arab Community Center, which is now the largest Arab-American organization in the country. Um, when did you start Access? Well, I didn't do it by myself, first of all. <laughs> a lot of great people helped out, but we started around 1970 and okay. incorporated in 1971. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we're in 26, uh, I think it's more than that, cities. We've got partners in 26 cities. And I think uh, in 10 communities here in Detroit as well. Uh, So uh, we adopted it at Access. And when the uh, Arab American Museum came into existence, uh, they adopted us last year. They just couldn't, for financial and focus reasons, couldn't stay our home anymore. And this year, uh, Culture Source, uh, Omari Rush and all Mm -hmm. the folks over there have made us an offer to be home for us. And so our home now is at Culture Source. That's wonderful. And so this move to the, to the DIA has, is significant. We want to make sure people show up at the right place, especially for the Don Juan's All-Star <laughs> Review. Oh, yeah. want to make sure they don't show up at Orchestra Hall. Yeah, I hope the musicians are listening. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is going to take place in the Kresge Court and the Rivera Court. And the other thing um, that we should discuss is the fact that this is going on into the next week. Um, a lot of times we're Sunday, we're sort of wrapping things up, but there are a number of things that are happening um, after Sunday, not the least of which is a couple of films. Right. So uh, after Sunday, we'll have uh, two films, one on Monday, and uh, Don will be helping us to introduce uh, a film that has not been shown in the Detroit area. So it will debut at the film theater, uh, and it's a documentary about Blue Note Records. And in some ways, the history of jazz. 
And then the second uh, day, uh, Richard Parrish from the Carnival, uh, Caribbean Carnival and Cultural Organization will introduce uh, a movie that's been around for a while but hardly seen, right. and that's the Grace Jones movie, Blood, mm-hmm. Light, and Bammy, right. uh, Bammy being a Caribbean kind of bread. And it really shows the connection to the Caribbean and uh, Grace Jones. And then f- that Friday, is that Friday? Thursday. Thursday the 18th, thank you. <laughs> uh, we are going to do the only ticketed event we've ever done to support the Charles Wright and it will be a, a blowout party for uh, Martha Reeves' 78th birthday. Mm-hmm. hope I got the year right. You did. Right. Okay. You're good. Thank, thank you. That would be one not to mess up. You did and, good there. And, and Don was and a group of super talented musicians will be the band. And there will also be a dance party there, so it will be a lot of fun. Uh, if people want, uh, they can contact the Charles Wright Museum uh, for tickets for that. Uh, everything else is free. And tonight, tonight we kick off That's uh, right. with uh, a anniversary, WDET's 70th, 70th anniversary. <laughs> I got everyone's birthday. I'm ready. <laughs> In fact, there's a lot of anniversaries. There's WDET's anniversary, the DSO's 100th anniversary, the International Institute's 100th anniversary, uh, Motown 60th, Blue Notes 80th. Right. right. And we'll be doing a whole thing. We'll talk okay. about that in a second. And uh, so we're going to have a giant street party right next to the DSO. I'll say it again. Right next to the DSO starting at 6 o'clock tonight. And uh, there'll be all kinds of performances there. Uh, we've got uh, the winners of the Tiny Desk Contest. Janice, yes. Mm-hmm. We're going to do a piece on her later this hour, yeah. Okay. And also, uh, I'm really excited, Will Sessions uh, will be coming with an 11-piece band and Dames Brown. Mm-hmm. This is a f- <laughs> funk group like you've never seen, a group of women funketeers. <laughs> and I'll be sitting in and spinning with a bunch of uh, drummers, some of the best drummers in the city, African Latin. I'll be joined by my wife, who is mm-hmm. also played with Onyx and the Layabouts, and uh, uh, Maruga Booker, who's played with just oh, about course. everyone on earth, from John Lee Hooker to uh, Weather Report. We'll all be there. Uh, and we have a bunch of Middle East dancers as well. So it'll be a lot of fun. Please come tonight, all of you. So, yeah, that's going to be at 6 o'clock tonight. And that is, um, Ishmael said, right outside of the DSO. Not the DIA. This is at the DSO. And um, WDET Music Host will be there. And it's going to be a lot of fun. There might even be a Don West sighting at some point. I I wouldn't miss this for the (laughs) world, man. This sounds great. My kind of night. (laughs) So, Don, when I was getting ready to talk to you guys, it occurred to me that it was right now, 30 years ago, I was here at WDET, and we were playing Nick of Time and Love Shack. (laughs) <laughs> like crazy, both of which you. you produced, of course, and changed your life, yeah, changed Bonnie Raitt's life. Sure. B-52s as well. Yeah. I mean, that that song like had them reemerge, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, it's hard to believe that was 30 years ago. Uh, and also, I, I know those records mean a lot to people, but I'm not so sure what we did differently in the studio <laughs> for those as opposed to the... Ones we made a month before or a month after, but but those two really seem to 
uh, resonates still. Well, Bonnie's album is beautiful from top to bottom. Well, she's the greatest. She is. You know, and uh, and she was just finding some new thing inside of her. And uh, I don't I don't think there's a better singer in the world. In in terms of. Uh, not just in terms of technique, you know, but in terms of digging deep inside and uh, coming up with something very, very real. You know, I was listening to um, an interview with her, and she talked about how she couldn't wait for her voice to sound older. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> her voice sounded so pure when she was, in those early recordings. It's, it's, it's not the voice of an angel, really. Yeah, it's, it's almost unrecognizable from, you know, what she sounds like now. Uh, she um, couldn't wait. But she—that's where she found it, right on 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 that record. And I, I think it's a brave, a very brave record too. You know, it, women were supposed to act like they were eighteen as they were turning forty. <laughs> right, right. That, that's that, in, in rock and roll. You know, you, and she was just unabashedly forty, mm-hmm. and it was a brave move. Uh, she understood that, so was her audience, <laughs> and uh, and. Uh, and record companies didn't necessarily get that at the time. But she kind of changed the way uh, the way you mature in rock and roll. She made it okay yeah. to be a woman and be yeah. 40 and play yeah. music. Yeah. I remember when she was coming to Detroit, we, did, we had talked to the promoter. WDT was the only one's playing her at the time. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. certainly changed in the coming months. But yeah. we went to the promoter, and he just looked at uh, It was Judy Adams and I. I'll never forget. And he just said, well... Can you even, is this even going to sell? <laughs> you know? And then Great he came, promoter. And then he came, well, they ended up booking. We, we said to him, we know this will sell out. <clears throat> and and then, it, of course, it did. He could have sold like three more nights or something like that. Wow. And, and later on, he, that he kind of happened. Time. Oh, go ahead. I oh, go ahead. You off. No. no, no, it's okay. <laughs> later on, he said. <laughs> no, no, later, later on, he said, I should have listened to you guys. You know? <laughs> it was the same exact thing with the record. No one thought it was going to sell, including us, by the way, which is probably why we were able to to make uh, a better record because we just thought this is, this is so unfashionable. <laughs> Let's just do something we're going to be proud of in twenty five years. But that's, it turns out that's not necessarily a bad business plan no, either. It worked out great for both of you. Yeah. That's for sure. Um, a boat full of Grammys later, and Bonnie Raitt was on her way. Yeah. The whole world got to know who she was, and that's yeah. the way it should have been. So this is going to be a, a bit of a pedestrian question for you, but I had a listener. I was talking about a producer on the air. Uh, this was about two months ago. And this listener wrote and said, you know, the rest of us who listen to music don't necessarily know what a producer really does. It didn't occur to me that it's a little bit of a mystery. Yeah. Well, and yeah. you have, you know, your career is so multifaceted, but that's one part of what you do and do so yeah. well. What does a producer do, or what do you, I guess producers work differently. What do you do as a producer when you walk in to work with somebody? Well, you're absolutely right that everybody works differently. There's some, there's some producers who, uh, who write all the songs, cut all the tra- tracks, play all the instruments themselves, you know, from Prince to Babyface to, you know, most of these hip-hop guys today. Right. And then uh, they lay down a guide vocal and have the singer imitate their phrasing. And that's a perfectly legitimate way to produce a record. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's not one that I personally cater to. I like, uh, I like to have a room full of people. <laughs> <laughs> I want everyone in the room to be much better than I am. 
And what I'd like to do is I'd like to work with artists who have a, a vision and then help them kind of uh, bring that vision into focus and then to capture it uh, in the recording. Uh, they're the artist. Uh, I'm not, you know, it's kind of, the other approach is really more of an auteur producer. Mm -hmm. uh, but there, there are all kinds of ways of doing it. That's just, but that's the way I do it. That's the way I'd like to do it. Um, that brings me to the fact that um, this year we're focusing on Motown Records, celebrating yes. its 60th anniversary. Yeah. Um, and when you go to Hitsville and you stand in that teeny tiny studio, mm -hmm. it really is mind-blowing what they created there. Um, from a production standpoint, um, when you stand in a room like that and see how small it was and everything that they did, um, what do you think about how they did? They worked so fast then, mm -hmm. and everybody was right there. And I know you've done records that way, too, yeah, with, with artists all the time. I do it all the time, yeah. um, Is that an uncommon way to do to, to produce these days, do it you is, think? It is, yeah. It's, a, it's an uncommon way to produce, uh, but it's, it's, it's a way to do it, <laughs> and it's, it's the way that's the most fun. I, when I go into that little room there, which is you know, probably smaller than this room mm -hmm. we're sitting in right now, and imagine 10 or 11 people crammed in there and everyone playing. And then the, you think about all those legendary, incredible musicians. And to just think that they were just sitting in there, <laughs> it must have just been hot and buzzing and, and just the greatest place to be. And you can tell, listening to the records, that uh, there's not, uh, they're, they're not too strict. You know, mm -hmm. it's a, they're jazz musicians basically playing R&B and they never, not only do they not do each take the same, but like James Jamerson, if you listen to his bass parts, he's he never plays a verse the same as, you know, verse, verse, completely different than the second verse. It's rooted in a groove, but he's improvising the whole time. Even if there's a repetitive line, he phrases it a little differently every time. And that's that's part of what makes it, those records so exciting is that they're all live and they're all focused, and they kind of come together. Uh, you get all, uh, all these individuals having a conversation that where the whole becomes greater than the sum of the parts, and it just soars, man. And, and they hold up today as some of the greatest records ever made. Um, well, that brings me to another point. James Jamerson, you mm. are a bass player. James Jamerson, sure. incredible bass player. Some people think the best bass player that ever lived. Um, and you have had to learn his parts I have. for getting ready for the Don Was All-Star Review and uh, this tribute to Motown. And you guys are doing a lot of songs. And many of those songs were um, bass lines that James Jamerson laid Almost down. Almost all of them, yeah. 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 Um, I have a clip of, I interviewed Dennis Coffey, and they were good friends. Mm -hmm. And Dennis Coffey, a fellow funk brother of James Jamerson. And part of the review. Uh, part of the review. Yeah, you know, so yeah. Dennis is part of the review, and we're going to go down the list. But I wanted you to listen to this clip, Don, because yeah, he talks good. about James Jamerson. So um, this is uh, about minute 20, and I had asked him about James Jamerson. Okay. He was my best friend at Motown. He got me over there. I used to hang out with Jamerson. He was an incredible bass player, and he read the charts. We had to read charts back then. So I think somewhere down the line, instead of chord sheets where he did his own thing, because we had to read master rhythm charts. So everybody had the same chart in front of us. That's what made the music so tight. We had the same music. But uh, he was just an uh, amazing bass player, and uh, 
he created that style. And, you know, and uh, Jamerson and I were friends, but also we agreed that each musician has to be true to their style. You can't be somebody else. You have to be yourself. And he, he and I were both proponents of that, and I still am. What else made James Jamerson so good? He had a, he kept a high action on his bass because uh, he was an upright bass player at first. So he had a high action on his bass, and it was just, uh, you know, it's just the feel that he had. He had a very hollow, tight bass sound, very uh, full sound. But Jamerson also played through the changes because he was a jazz player at first, so he understood chord changes. A lot of bass players were playing on the root in the fifth. Jamerson could, would just play right through the whole thing, maybe, and just lock down. But he could play melodic stuff through there because he knew how to do it because he was Jamerson. How about that? That's beautiful. Is that a pretty good um, synopsis of, of why James Jamerson's so good? A very uh, insightful uh, thing. <laughs> but he's also just a natural-born genius, too. And no one ever played the bass like him. Uh, he's... He's holding down the low end, like like Dennis says, you know, he's, you know. But he's not doing it the conventional way of just playing the one or the five, right. know, the couple of specific notes related to the chord. He's he's a melodicist primarily, and he's working with the melody of the song, which normally you're not supposed to do As because it player. steps on the singers, right? But he's got a way of doing it that supports the singers and actually gives them something to bounce off of, which is a very rare kind of insight then he's also playing harmonies to those chords so there are a lot of alternative notes that that mm-hmm. make it, it's kind of like what mozart would do in a string quartet and he's percussive in it in it he's he's doing all these crazy syncopations he's basically driving the thing and in a uh, in a way that no one ever did before and you can you can learn what he did you can study it you can mm-hmm. transcribe it but to, uh, you know, re- repeating it is one thing. Being it is mm-hmm. another thing. And no one, co- I mean, Bob Babbitt, I thought, came really close. Right. Uh, sometimes I can't tell if it's Bob or, right. or James. But outside of that, uh, there's, there's still nobody like him. And it's a real conundrum for me, to be honest with you. I was up till 3 o'clock last night just playing <laughs> these things in the hotel yeah. room because I don't want to disrespect his legacy. Right, but I can't do what he did. I mean, I could I could transcribe it and read it, but that's not doing what he did. Right. So you you just want to try to be the song, and hopefully, will this particular group of musicians, all of whom except for Dennis Coffey, will be different than the people who were in the Motown studio, will find the the way to be themselves. Which, by the way, that was Dennis said that right? Yeah. You got to be. Or, you got to be true to James. yourself. Yeah. I think. That's really important in music and also in life. That's why people like music so much because it's metaphorical. But finding a way to do things, it doesn't matter if you're a dentist or you're paving the road, you know, like right. be yourself. All right, we've got about three more minutes. And um, Ishmael, we're going to go down the list of musicians. So the Don Was All-Star Review, um, I will go th- through these quickly here. Kathy Cousins is performing. Our good pal Melvin Davis will mm-hmm. be there. Nadir Omawale, Ty Stone. Kenny Watson, who was on Alive in the D the other day, singing What's Going On. Yeah. Um, the Drinkard Sisters, Jill Jack, Martha and the Vandellas, Carolyn Crawford, who recorded for Motown. Mm-hmm. Um, Carolyn Strio will be there, Mitch Ryder, and then the Velvelettes 
will be at the Detroit show, and they are the only remaining original group from Motown with all of the original members members, Yeah, yeah. that they're going to be performing. So we're very excited about this. So I'd also like to talk a bit about some of the other acts that we'll be playing. Yep. Uh, So we have a guy coming from Egypt. He led the Cultural Revolution in Egypt, the Arab Spring, has millions of followers. He's a classic rocker. He sings in Arabic. And he is now banned in Egypt. He was tortured and jailed. And everybody related to his music has been tortured and jailed. Uh, and he is here not only to sing, but to talk about free expression. Uh, his name is Rami Assam. He will open up the concert of Colors Main Stage, which is in the Detroit Film Theater. Uh, also, we have uh, Toby Foye and his Africans, a Nigerian band that's kind of between King Sonny Ade and Fela. And oh, they're uh, great. And then that night, we're also going to have the Don Was Review. Sunday, one of the most iconic reggae bands in the world, Third World, will be closing. A band out of Palestine, 47 Souls, that takes Arabic wedding music and electrifies it to a whole nother dimension, <laughs> will be opening for them. And starting out, Osvaldo Rivera and La Inspiracion, along with Marmbo Marcy and their dancers and um, and African dancers, re- African Caribbean dancers, Reconstruction will also be playing on Sunday. On the uh, in Kresge Court, uh, Jerry Stormer will have a whole bunch of uh, singer songwriters on Sunday. That gets going in the morning, eleven o'clock, I think. Right, yep. exactly. Mm-hmm. And then on uh, we have outside stage, the Wolverine stage. I won't go through the list of artists but they are some of the finest artists in the city of Detroit. And on the, we're going to open up the Revere Court with yoga on Saturday. <laughs> oh, cool. And then on Sunday, we've Don's got... Don's going to make the whole review. They're all going to be <laughs> there getting ready. At the Art <laughs> and then Sunday, we're going to open up Revere Court with more yoga, but with, uh, uh, with music and the Detroit Women's Course. It'll be a giant yoga sound bath. For those of you that do yoga with goats. And then uh, then also Shigeto will be playing there. And Tazlima Bay, uh, who has mm-hmm. some of the finest uh, jazz musicians in the city, her ragtime band. I know Marion Hayden will be playing with them oh. and many, many more. Uh, and then I should also mention on Friday, the uh, Charles Wright has a whole lineup of great musicians and that's just the beginning. We have 60 performers, of performing groups, you should say. But to find out more, you really need to go to concertofcolors.com. I'll say it again, concertofcolors.com for the entire lineup. Finally, I do want to mention on Thursday at the Arab American Museum, we have our yearly forum on right. community, culture, and race. And free expression will be the basis of that. Gloria House will be speaking, or Aneb as we call her. Uh, Rami will be speaking and playing, and there will also be a Native American rap group speaking and playing. Wow. Wow. That's a pretty extensive 
lineup, man. That's that a really good festival this year. Yeah, nice it's work. amazing. Yeah. Everything from your downward-facing dog to <laughs> <laughs> music from around the world. And here in the Motor City, and there'll be films. So this is an extended concert of colors, um, and there's going to be a lot going on. Um, but tonight, we will mention one more time, Right outside the DSO, the WDET Street Party is happening um, at 6 o'clock. We hope to see you there. The weather is supposed to hold out, and if it doesn't, we're going to just move the party inside, so it's going to happen rain or shine, um, and that's going to happen tonight. Don Was, thank you. Yeah, thank um, you. I will see you at uh, the Concert of Colors for sure. And uh, Ishmael Ahmed, thank you for being the heart and soul of the Concert of Colors all these years. Yeah. We are going to listen to a piece created about uh, Janice. Janice is our fan favorite from the Tiny Desk Concert. We're going to check in about that right Right after this, here on 1019 WDET, I'm Andalisi. This is Detroit Today. Jamaica, no problem. I got to say. back here on Detroit Today. I'm Andalisi sitting in for Stephen Henderson today. Thank you so much for listening. Um, So each year, NPR creates a nationwide contest looking for unique musical talent. And this year, um, there were more than 150 of them from Michigan alone. And the winner ended up being um, from Alaska, by the way. Anyway, WDET music hosts um, juried the Michigan entries for the 2019 NPR Tiny Desk Contest. And the public voted for the opening act for WDET's party tonight at the DSO. So it's our big street party. And over 3,000 voters made Janice the fan favorite. So we're going to take a listen back to Janice's interview with WDET's Culture Shift host, Amanda LeClaire. Um, They got together a couple of weeks ago to talk and um, this is what that conversation sounded like. We are live in WDET Studio A with the Detroit artist Janice. And the reason that we are here is because uh, maybe perhaps you've heard over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the NPR Tiny Desk Concert Contest. Well, 150 Michigan artists entered to the NPR Tiny Desk Contest and WDET's music host kind of whittled it down to five. And we asked you guys, your listeners, to vote on your favorite. And you voted Detroit artist Janice as the fan favorite. And you'll be opening up for Will Sessions and Dames Brown at the Maxim Fisher Music Theater for the Concert of Colors. So we are live in studio. Hey, Janice. Hi, how are you? I am so glad you're here. This is really (laughs) exciting. So we have just a few minutes to talk, and we just really really want to get into the music as well because we're going to hear one of your songs. Um, And so i kind of curious. You discovered your passion for performing and music at a pretty young age. How did you get started exactly? So I was three years old, um, singing in church on my mom's lap, just making noise. And then um, she discovered me in the kitchen singing a Aretha Franklin's Freedom and I was just going with my singing my heart out and she's like oh you really want to do this and I'm like yeah so it's been history ever since at the age of three as a toddler that's adorable that's (laughs) (laughs) I I wish there were cell phone video of that I know so cute yeah so what has been your biggest influence uh, as you've grown up from being a kid to being an adult performer now so my mom has always kept me around all different types of genres of music and so I've grown a really great love for people like Aretha Franklin and Whitney Houston and then some of our latest favorites Beyonce Jasmine Sullivan and you know people like that so 
I think it's uh, awesome. You're also want to let people know you grew up on the west side of Detroit. So yeah. you are Detroit born and bred artist. Yes. Um, and definitely you got a lot going on. You just had a new EP come out in March as well, right? Yes. So my EP, Stupid Girl, released March 22nd. And it's been out for about three months now. And it's been doing really great. I got uh, people in Guam playing it on the radio. So I think it's really, really cool. It's awesome. So congratulations on that. And congratulations on being voted to open up for Will Sessions and Dave's Brown at the Concert of Colors. So we definitely want to hear some music. But why don't you introduce your band as well? Sure. So accompanying me is uh, Dave Loverboy. He's an artist as well. And he's playing the electric guitar today for me. Awesome. All right. So let's hear a song. Okay. And this is one reason and it's off of my EP, Stupid Girl. at the dash and I see my tanks on me but that ain't stopping me I'm on my way I'm on my way to you I know that it's not safe for me to be out here on my own but the driver making is all it takes to be there in your arms and I think that it's Worth the risk So I'm on my way I'm on my way to you It'll be way, way crazy To see your face To hear your heartbeat with mine It'll be way, way crazy To share your space And we fall in love all over again So give me one, give me one reason to walk back out the door I'll tell you one, tell you one reason why you deserve my heart Don't run away, don't push me away Cause all I want is you I was just 14 when it all made sense I fell in love with the boy across the fence We were young and carefree We'd kiss away the worries I knew that I would always run to you Now here I am standing at your door Wondering what happened years ago But here I am In front of you And I give my all I give all that I have So give me one Give me one reason to Walk back out that door I'll tell you one Tell you one reason 
that was beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. That was gorgeous. Oh, I'm so glad you're going to be joining us at the Concert of Colors. That's where people are going to be able to see you perform live. Opening up for Will Sessions and Dames Brown. It's also going to be WDET's uh, 70th anniversary. So definitely come check out uh, Detroit artist Janice. And again, your EP came out in March. It's called yes, Stupid, Girl. Stupid Girl. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in thank today. Thank you so much. That was Amanda LeClaire, WDET's Amanda LeClaire, talking with Janice, the WDET fan favorite for the Tiny Desk concert. Janice will be performing tonight at the DSO, WDET DSO Street Party, along with Ishmael Ahmed and the Earth Island drummers, Lana Minnie and her dancers, and Detroit funk outfit Will Sessions with special guest Dames Brown. If you want to find out more about all of the things happening with the Concert of Colors, go to concertofcolors.com. Here's some music from Will Sessions here on 1019 WDET. Won't you fly me through the clouds? Drive me to the From Will Sessions. Will Sessions is performing tonight as part of the WDET DSO Street Party starting at 6 o'clock right outside the DSO. We hope to see you there. It's free. Just show up and have a great time and help us celebrate our 70th anniversary. Well, there's been a lot, there's been a lot of anniversaries um, this year, including Motown Records' 60th anniversary. I'm Ann Delisi, by the way. I typically host a show called Essential Music, but I'm in sitting in for uh, Stephen Henderson today as we're doing this special Concert of Colors edition of the show. Well, earlier this year, I produced a piece for Culture Shift um, that celebrated the 60th anniversary of Motown Records, and we thought today would be a great day to air that once again. Here is that piece. Hi, I'm Ian Delisi. 60 years ago on January 12th, Motown Records was born. No one could have predicted the parade of supremely talented artists who would walk through its doors, or that the music created in that humble space would influence the course of music history, not just in this country, but around the world. Before creating Motown Records, its founder, Barry Gordy, served in the military, worked on the auto assembly line, spent time as a boxer, and wrote hit songs for Jackie Wilson, including Reet Petit and Lonely Teardrops. Barry Gordy had an entrepreneurial spirit. He was a gifted songwriter and had the unique ability to recognize talent when he heard it. Here's Barry Gordy. Jackie Wilson had another hit and another hit, and I became fairly well known as the writer for Jackie Wilson, but I was not making any money. I had to go into business for myself, borrowed money from family savings, which we had, uh, my sister Esther had set up, and no one could get any money from there. But I really wanted to open up my own record company. I wanted to do something. I had all these hits on Jackie Wilson, and they said, yes, but what do you got to show for it? I said, that's the point, that's the point. I asked for $1,000, they only gave me 800. And so I could uh, start trying to go into business for myself. You know, I found a place on West Grand Boulevard that was a photo studio with two, some big windows in the front, which I loved. And the garage I made into a recording studio we call Studio A. Hitsville, USA was a place where hits were going to be made. Only hits, no flops. My job was to get the hits. And so we tried to create that assembly line approach. And then with them being a star in their music, had to go through this quality control, the same as in the factories, you know, you check this, you check that, and so forth. And that seemed to work very well. Then we had the artist development, which my sisters set up, because they were models, and they wanted the people to look good, and so they brought in this woman, Maxine Powell, 
And she set up this finishing school for them, which had been unheard of. We had a guy from the Apollo shot, Charlie Atkins, who came in to be the choreographer. And we had other people, Morris King, that was at the Flame Show Bar when I saw Jackie Wilson. He came in to do the music harmony and stuff with the Temptations and all these people. And we just had this family of people coming in, all purposeful and all a part of this. So I had a relationship with every artist, every producer, every writer, you know, I knew them and I talked to them and I would critique their songs. True enough, you know, we, we made hits. I mean, they felt, they felt like they were coming into a magical place and it did turn out to be magical. People would come to me to audition for me or to sing for me or something. The voice was one factor, the quality of the voice, their showmanship and all that, but really who they were as people was much more important to me. And there were many people that had phenomenal voices and were great singers, but they weren't right for Motown. They weren't right for, for our family, you know? And so those people that came in that were right for the family, you know, who maybe had great, great voices but weren't polished or weren't this or weren't that, you know, we knew that we would win. We would win, and we did. The first hit for Motown Records was Money, That's What I Want. It went on to be covered by many artists, including the Beatles, in 1963. Here is Barrett Strong talking about recording that song, and you'll also hear him mention that at that time, Motown didn't have its name yet. Here is Barrett Strong. I was sitting in the studio. He just got the bill in for the studio, and uh, we didn't know what to, what to call it. We didn't know whether to call it Motown or what. He didn't know whether they wanted to build a studio or a record company. So I'm sitting there playing the piano. I was playing Ray Charles' song, What Does it Say? And then I started messing with the keys, playing the hook for money. Dun, 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 dun. And Robert Bateman, who's the engineer at the time, said, he ran and said, Barry, can we listen to what he's playing? Barry said, let's get a song. And, and uh, I kept playing it. Then we recorded the track. So we started jotting down lyrics. And so I just started singing the hook and playing it. I was still thinking Ray Charles in the back of my mind. You sang the hook? Yeah. That was you? So you came up with the riff for the piano riff, and you came up with the hook. Right. Who ended up writing with you to finish the rest of Barry the song? Barry Gordy and Janie Bradford. When it came time to record the song, who was in the studio with you? Robert Bateman, who, who was the engineer, the only engineer at the time. And Barry Gordy was there when you recorded it? Yes. Do you remember how many takes it took? It took 100. Really? Really. One of the key members that is rarely acknowledged in the success of Motown was Barry Gordy's partner, Barney Ayliss, a smart, savvy record industry player who understood how to get records played and distributed. While Barry Gordy focused on the creative side of Motown, it was Barney Ayliss who concentrated on the business side of things. Here is author Adam White, who wrote Motown, The Sound of Young America, talking about that relationship. When he met Barry and they struck it, you know, they struck up a relationship, they hit it off, he had all of that business acumen and experience to bring to Motown. And, and they didn't, you know, he didn't go join them right away. He, he started distributing a couple of Motown records. But Barry and Barney struck up a very strong personal relationship. They really liked each other's company. They used to hang out together in the week. They'd go to, you know, they'd go out to clubs and hang out and the weekends they'd go out with their wives. And there's a photo in the book that captures that, that 
very strong personal relationship between, between the two men. But they were also competitive. And as the company grew, you know, Barry was all about the creative side of the, the, the company. That was all he was interested in. And as Barney said to me, I never wanted to go into the studio and Barry never wanted to go to the distributors. But without those two elements, it wouldn't have worked. So they were very competitive, as well as being close friends. They were competitive, representing each side of the company. And, and it's true, without you know, one or other. I mean, the music, we know the music was extraordinary. But if those records hadn't been played and the company hadn't got paid, nothing would have happened. We wouldn't be talking about Motown today. Another person vital to Motown record success was Smokey Robinson, who was a brilliant songwriter and producer in addition to being the leader of the Miracles. Here again is Adam White talking about the importance of Smokey's presence at Motown. And also remember, this was someone who Barry could implicitly trust. He, he, you know, the friendship and the trust they had was a foundation stone of, of the company. But yes, Smokey's creativity on behalf of the Miracles and then for other artists, and as I said, Mary Wells in particular, were absolutely essential to it. And you listen to those lyrics that Smokey wrote. I mean, you know, I'll try something new, any of those songs. I mean, they, to this day, they stand up to, to analysis and, and they, are, they were poetry. And now here is Smokey Robinson talking about what it was like to be at Motown Records. You had to be producing while you were recording. And the engineer had to be on it because he had to be mixing while you were recording. Because there was only one track. And everybody who was going to be on that record had better be in that studio then. And the most you might be able to do is get two takes of almost or relatively the same tempo if you wanted to and splice something in from one take to another, you know. But other than that, there was no remixing and all that stuff like that. And I recall when we first got two tracks in Motown where we could have our lead singer on a separate track than all the other stuff. Boy, we thought we were the most innovative com company in the world. We probably were at that point. People were coming to Detroit from all over the world, man. From Africa, from England, from Switzerland, from all over the United States, Chicago, Nashville, New York, L.A to record their artists in Detroit because they thought the Motown sound was in the air. If you came to Detroit to record your artists, you were gonna get the Motown sound because that's where it was. It was lurking in the air somewhere in Detroit. And what they didn't realize is that we recorded our artists on the road a lot of times when they were out on tour because we needed to get a record on them. We recorded them in London we recorded them in Paris, we recorded them in Chicago and New York and, and Nashville and, and, and LA and wherever they might be. We always got the Motown sound. The Motown sound is the people. We are the Motown sound. The great thing that happened in Motown is that we bombarded them with hits over and over and over and over and over again. And it got to the point where as they were calling us to see what we were going to release next. Same thing, I think about payola, you know, uh, uh, when, when people were paying the disc jockeys to play their music and all that, you know, and payola was a big thing. We, we never really had to go through that, you know. We went through a period of time when the disc jockeys would call them and say, hey man, give us the record first, you know. They were like warring over who was going to get the next Motown record, which was a great place to be in, man. Motown was a, was a phenomenon. It, it was a, what I call a, a once-in-a-lifetime 
musical event because nothing like that had ever happened prior to that time. And I doubt seriously if anything like that will happen again. Smokey Robinson and the Miracles had the first million selling song for Motown Records, although it almost bankrupt the company. Here again is author Adam White talking about the rocky start for Motown and the artists who started to change things. The Miracles had some great records and some hits, including one that almost bankrupted the company because they couldn't get paid for it. That was a shop around. Right. So they and had that an was earlier the first... Hit. Well, that was the first... It went to number two on the pop chart. So right. it was the first big crossover record. Right. Um, and they couldn't get paid for it properly. I mean, you know, they, they, it was just a hassle. But so Motown had its... You're right. It had its tough times at the beginning. Uh, but Mary had three successive top ten crossover hits. So that was when it's like... Oh, okay. So this place is going, is making things happen. And that, you know, Smokey's songs, Smokey's production, that was when they really started to motor and began to have more confidence in themselves as a, as a creative team and then as a business. hit songs by Mary Wells that Adam White mentions as a turning point for Motown Records. One of the keys to Motown's success was the legendary meetings in which songwriters such as Holland Dozier Holland and producers like Norman Whitfield would meet to determine which songs would be recorded and by whom. Here again is Barry Gordy. One of my philosophies of things was competition breeds champions. We would compete on everything. I mean, when we had these quality control meetings, we competed on the songs, you know, and they knew in that quality control meaning that they were immune to any kind of repercussions of anything. And they could, they could fight about things. And in my company, I created this whole atmosphere of, of safety, uh, of, of ideas and thoughts, because I was in charge, but I made Logic the boss. And I encouraged them to prove that that was true by attacking me anytime they felt, because we were on equal ground there in, this, in these meetings. We had major fights. You know, my record's better than yours. And I said, so put it up, put, it, put them up there, baby. You know, <laughs> be my guest. I would then say, okay, this record won here. And so this is the best record here. But if you had $1 and you were hungry, would you buy this record or a hot dog? <laughs> People would say, oh, that record by far. And somebody would say, I buy the hot dog. You know, it worked very, very well for a while, and then it had some trouble because sometimes the competition got in the way of the love because everybody loved everybody else, and people would sing on everybody's records, and the Supremes would sing on Marvin Gaye's records, and, and uh, Stevie would play for some people, and Marvin would play drums on other... You know, everybody worked together, but the love has to overcome everything else. You've got to really understand people, and by listening, you get to really kind of love people because you know where they're coming from. If you don't know them, you can't love them. If you can't communicate with them, you can't love them. And what brought all of those Motown songs to life? 
the Funk Brothers, of course. Here is Funk Brother and guitarist Dennis Coffey. Well, if you look at uh, the quality of the music, I mean, the songs were amazing, the grooves were amazing, the production stuff, everything was just... Barry was very good at making sure as the leader, because he was more than a manager, he was a leader and then he was the business guy, of making sure that the very best records that Motown could provide are the ones that came out. He had great quality control. So you can listen to those records, and they still stand up because you don't have stuff coming out nowadays. They're computer-generated and uh, uh, a lot of different things. Back in the day, you had the best musicians in Detroit, the Funk Brothers, making these records. And that was, that was part of the uh, attention to the foundation. The foundation was there with the Funks. I mean, you had the writers first, but nothing came to life until the Funks put their hands on it. You know, So that was, that was Barry knew that. And that's how it was. So that made those records. You, I, you put up Cloud Nine right now and say, holy cow, what is that? Motown Records went through many changes since its inception, but its soulful contribution to the world remains a constant to this day. To celebrate Motown Records' 60th anniversary, they just released volumes one and two of Motown unreleased tracks from everyone from the Four Tops to Martha Reeves and the Vandellas to the Temptations. The Motown Museum will be celebrating all year long. Visit MotownMuseum.org to find out more. For WDET, I'm Andalisi. Motown Records is celebrating their anniversary all all year long, and the Don Was All-Star Review will be paying tribute to Motown Records. That is going to be part of the Concert of Colors that happens this Saturday night. This time we're going to be out at the Detroit Film Theater, so we hope that you will join us. It's free. Bring your kids. Come and have a good time and celebrate the music that was made here, Motown Records, of course, and uh, certainly the Concert of Colors. If you want to find out more about all of the events happening at the Concert of Colors, please go to concertofcolors.com. Detroit Today is produced by Jake Neer, program director Joan Isabella, technical director and engineer Matthew Trevethan, associate producers Anna Marie Seisling and Chris Williams. Detroit Today's theme song was composed by WDET's Sam Bobian. I'm Andalisi. It's been my pleasure to sit in for Stephen Henderson today. And my uh, a big thanks to my guests Ishmael Ahmed and Don Was for spending time talking about the concert of colors and talking about music. Thank you again for listening. This is WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Enjoy your day. Thanks again for listening. And God knows that you're the